0: Uh, welcome very much to the Institute for Government this afternoon and we're really, really delighted to welcome David Sterling, the head of the Northern Ireland Civil Service. Um, we put this down as, a, as an IFG Devo event rather than an IFG Brexit event, but we're going to talk both about uh, how government is working in Northern Ireland and also uh, about a bit about Brexit, inevitably since uh, Ireland, Northern Ireland have been so centre stage. Uh, of the debates over here. Um, the reason we're so keen and very glad that, uh, that after having to cancel last month, David uh, offered us a date very quickly thereafter to rearrange, is that uh, as Bronwyn Maddox pointed out in her annual lecture earlier in this year, uh, we think not enough people in Whitehall and Westminster are paying attention to the fact that has now been, David tells me there are different ways of counting this, but there have now been 905 days in which Northern Ireland has been without ministers. There are obviously some civil servants who will think that sounds like a dream. I can do my job and I don't have the inconvenience of politicians there. And Today, of all days, they may be feeling that even more acutely than than they might at other times. But of course, there are real problems in trying to govern without ministers. There are huge numbers of things where basically ministers are needed to give political cover uh, and there are limits to what the civil service can do. Uh, And I think the Northern Ireland Civil Service actually is doing a remarkable job in keeping the show on the road. But how we're gonna run today is David is gonna actually do a sort of very quick scene set for seven to eight minutes. I'm then gonna have a bit of a chat with him about some of the themes raised in that. And then of course we will come to all of you for your questions. This is, just as a reminder to anyone who is still a civil servant here, this is being live streamed and it's on the record, so we cannot cut out any of your indiscretions later, so think about that before you ask your question in a very beautifully phrased way. So, without further ado, (coughs) David Sterling, head of the Northern Ireland Civil Service.
1: Thank you, Jill, and uh, thanks again for the invitation. And sorry I couldn't make it on the first date, but um, I'm delighted to be here. Um, I, do, I just want to take a few minutes to give you some background in Northern Ireland, something about the people, the economy, the politics, and, and I may touch on Brexit, um, but I'm keen to leave as much uh, time as possible for a question and answer. So, Northern Ireland, uh, 1.8 million people. Um, we're expected to grow to 2 million people by 2040. Uh, looking at our economy, the positives, uh, we currently have the lowest unemployment at 3.1%, I think probably almost ever. Uh, to put that in context, it was 8% when I joined the civil service in 1978, and it actually rose to 18% in the mid-1980s. We've got the highest employment, 71.3%, we've got more people in work than ever before in Northern Ireland. Tourism is doing very well. Um, we're. Uh, due to meet a target of doubling uh, spend by visitors by 2020 to one billion. And we're building that on the back of things like Titanic, uh, Game of Thrones, and uh, for any golfers amongst you, I would <laughs> remind you that the Open Championship uh, is taking place in Port Rush next week. Uh, first time it's left Great Britain since 1951 when it was at Rush before. Mm. You might not know, but Northern Ireland is actually the highest performing region for foreign direct investment. <coughs> Uh, outside London in the southeast and has been in that sort of position for quite a few years now and we've got particular strengths in fintech, cyber security and legal services. But we do have some fairly fundamental challenges and uh, low productivity has bedeviled us for years. We've got high rates of economic activity. Uh, We don't have enough people in work and we don't have enough people earning good salaries. We've still got pockets of relatively high unemployment and higher than average youth and long-term unemployment with major inequalities and disadvantage. Uh, We have seen some discouraging signs on investment innovation and export performance in recent times and indeed the latest purchasing managers index uh, conducted in June showed that the local private sector is contracting, uh, has been contracting for a few months uh, with the strongest monthly reduction in output since November 2012. Employment new orders and backlogs of work continue to decrease, while business sentiment fell for the fourth month in the past five months, and Northern Ireland firms are the least optimistic of those in the 12 UK regions. Uh, Uncertainty over Brexit is now affecting investment decisions and is clearly the main factor behind the latest fall in activity. Turning to our politics and just civil service, uh, we are 23,000 people, we're organised in nine departments and following the assembly elections on the 2nd of March, 2017, we expected we'd be without ministers for no more than a few weeks. Uh, And as Jill has said, uh, we now reckon it's around 905 days, two and a half years. I think this is something that is quite extraordinary uh, and something which I have said before, I don't think would have been allowed to persist anywhere else uh, in these islands. Uh, As a civil service, in the absence of ministers, we've been doing all we can to deliver on the last executive's vision of improving well-being for all in Northern Ireland by tackling disadvantage and driving economic growth. We've been keeping the show on the road, <coughs> we've been bouncing the books and keeping the business of government going. We haven't had a cliff edge moment, um, but our public services are suffering from what we've termed decay and stagnation. We see this in health waiting lists, which are unacceptably long, We see this in our schools, which are under huge budgetary pressure, and we see this in our social housing, which has a growing maintenance backlog, and in many other areas, which I will not list now. Our health service, (coughs) our schools, our housing, and our criminal justice sectors are all crying out for transformation, and they're crying out for political leadership. Sadly, the limbo that we've been suffering for the last two years is in danger of becoming a new normal in Northern Ireland. But despite all this, I'm an optimist, I remain an optimist, and I'm confident we will see a return of devolved government. As we look back over the last 21 years to the Good Friday uh, Belfast Agreement in 1998 and the St Andrews Agreement in 2006, we have dealt with more difficult problems in the past. So I don't want to say too much about Mm -hmm. the ongoing political talks, other than that there's a clear desire amongst the five parties to get back into government. And while the issues that divide them are difficult, They're not, in my view, intractable, and as I say, we have dealt with more difficult things in the past. Then, of course, there's Brexit, (coughs) which carries significant political, social, and economic risks. Uh, As elsewhere in the UK, we have been working as a civil service hard to prepare for Brexit and to put in place all reasonable measures to mitigate risk. Uh, I have to say, and it's uncomfortable for me as a civil service to be making statements like this, but nonetheless, our assessment is that no deal would have a profound and long lasting negative impact on Northern Ireland's economy and society. This is a point I made to the Northern Ireland political parties back in March, and it remains valid today as the risk of no deal appears to be increasing. The impact of EU tariffs and non-tariff barriers will mean that whatever the Irish government and or the EU may do or not do, Many businesses will no longer be able to export to the Irish market, leading to a major reduction in Northern Ireland's exports to Ireland and the rest of the EU. That's currently around 3.9 billion pounds a year. Uh, Some businesses may respond by focusing more on the Northern Ireland and GB markets. However, the pressure pressure on import volumes and commodity prices created by the temporary tariff regime would mean that they are uh, uh, no longer competitive in the GB or Northern Ireland markets. And this risk is particularly acute for the agri-food sector. Uh, no deal would place pressure on ac- Northern Ireland's access to the EU, uh, leaving businesses with very limited options and the Northern Ireland economy facing an absolute reduction in exports and external sales. Tradable services is similarly exposed. For example, businesses exporting services to Ireland would face uh, increased costs uh, in doing business. Uh, our ICT sector is particularly vulnerable. Uh, where particular uh, increase in costs are being projected. Overall, it's been estimated that the increase in restrictiveness on trade with Ireland could equate to over 120 million pounds of extra costs per year. That would be a loss to our economy. Pressure on businesses to change behavior to remain viable <coughs> or the exploitation of differentials by organized crime groups could see an increase in smuggling and evasion. And the impact on communities, particularly in border regions, is difficult to quantify but any increase in non-compliance or evasion uh, could change behaviours and attitudes in communities, which over time, I think, would have an impact on the culture of lawfulness uh, in many of those areas. Picture is also challenging for consumers. Uh, Only a small minority of the goods in supermarket shelves are from Northern Ireland, and many more are externally sourced. So there is a risk of shortages and uh, of price rises, particularly if there's a further depreciation in sterling. As I said earlier, the Northern Ireland economy is already showing worrying signs, which means it may be poorly positioned to absorb any shocks from a no-deal Brexit. And it could lead, our Department for the Economy has today produced some analysis which suggests there could be a sharp increase in unemployment. And there could be severe consequences for both Northern Ireland's competitiveness in the all-island economy and Northern Ireland's place in the UK internal market. We have been consistently making these messages clear to the UK government, and indeed, our analysis is consistent with the analysis of the UK government in this regard. But in the absence of ministers, I feel compelled to uh, urge the UK government to listen to these grave concerns. For now, our priority as the Northern Ireland Civil Service is to facilitate and to prepare for the return of the executive and to continue to deliver public services as best we can. So thank you, and I'm happy to take questions. Yeah.
0: Thank, you. thank you, David. That was, uh, that was very, very interesting. I want to talk first a bit about actually how you make the government work without ministers. So if I was a citizen in Northern Ireland, what would be the signs to me that you know I haven't got ministers making decisions? Where would I be seeing the sort of strains showing in terms of decisions not being made that you might have done if you had had
1: yeah. the well well placed. obviously there are certain things that we have legal powers to do like you know, mm. uh, pay benefits mm. collect uh, local taxes and charges regulate the economy and and those are those things are continuing as, as normal and um, what we aren't able to do uh, and indeed court judgments have reinforced this point is uh, it is difficult for us to uh, develop or mm-hmm. implement new strategies and policies uh, and if we were to do so uh, it has been shown that courts courts mm-hmm. we could be challenged in mm-hmm. the courts on the basis that um, things that are normally done by ministers should continue to be done by ministers so we're having to mm-hmm. tread a careful mm-hmm. line uh, and uh, only intervene or do things mm-hmm. differently where there's a very clear public interest in doing mm-hmm. so obviously that calls for um, quite careful thinking mm-hmm. uh, you know, before decisions are taken, but this, this is proving to be quite a challenge. And in answer to your question about how would people notice the difference, I think it is very much that uh, as new opportunities arise, mm-hmm. as circumstances change, it is difficult for us to adjust mm-hmm. policy in, in light of that.
0: So how accountable do you and your colleagues feel? Because obviously there's not the assembly there Either so, what level of scrutiny is there about what you and your colleagues are deciding within that sort of slightly restrained um, range of decisions that you can make?
1: Yes, and this again is—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, uh, surprising in a sense that this has gone on so long. But like for example, I don't report to anybody. I, I have no boss. Um, uh, there are no assembly mm-hmm. scrutiny committees, um, and you know you, you joked yeah. that uh, many civil servants would see this as being some sort of heaven, yeah. but uh, far no, far from the truth. I think mm-hmm. all I can speak on behalf of all my mm-hmm. colleagues, mm-hmm. Um, we work in a system mm-hmm. where we are uh, expected to be under mm-hmm. the direction mm-hmm. and control of ministers, um, ministers who are democratically elected and democratically accountable. And we miss that, and we Mm. miss that badly. It is a a, a fundamental Mm. block in Mm. our democratic institutions that is missing at the moment. So um, we don't have that normal Mm. level Mm. of accountability Mm. to our assembly. Uh, And I think uh, we we are, nonetheless, we are dedicated public Mm. servants. Mm. Uh, I think we have probably been more visible in the media. Mm. Um, You know, I think we've had to Mm. respond to media inquiries and media scrutiny, Mm. and I think that's quite right, Mm. Um, uh, but it is, as I say, no substitute for the normal democratic processes which should be in place.
0: So you've got a strange position now, but to many of us who are used to working in Whitehall, working with the power sharing executive must have been quite a sort of interesting experience of trying to make what I think some of your colleagues termed a forced coalition work of basically. People who are politically implacably opposed, who are forced under the system to share power and make government work. So, could you just sort of explain a bit to uh, to a UK-based audience? How do you actually make power sharing work? And is and you know, is it good offering good quality government to the people of Northern Ireland? Are politicians up for making difficult decisions when they are in office?
1: That's quite a question. <laughs> um, I, I, I've worked. Um, I've worked in the devolved yeah. uh, institutions going right back mm. to 2000, so mm. I've, I've worked during the first period of devolution, the second period as mm. well. And it has actually been exciting, it has mm. been challenging, it has been stimulating. Mm. Uh, for people like me who, who lived through the 70s mm. and the 80s and the 90s, um, I think we, we were delighted mm. to see that at last it was mm. our own local people mm. who were in charge, who were actually mm. governing us. I think we as a civil service uh, relished the challenge. Mm-hmm. It was difficult, mm-hmm. uh, and, and there's no doubt, I think the fact that we had been serving direct rule ministers mm-hmm. for many years led to a sense that uh, perhaps there wasn't, mm-hmm. w- it took us a while I think, to build up trust, mm-hmm. both in 2000 and then again mm-hmm. in 2000, that we were an impartial service mm-hmm. that was there and that was uh, not only willing but capable of delivering good advice and good mm. service to ministers of mm. whatever party. And like I have served mm. ministers in most of the, the, the local parties. Mm. And uh, as I say, it has been challenging, stimulating, and we do look forward to them coming back.
0: And what's different about, I'm sort of quite <laughs> interested about, what's different about the way in which uh, a government works when you have you know, the first minister and uh, deputy first minister sitting together served by the executive office, but then you have individual departments you allocated not by the choice of the prime minister, but allocated through, a sort of, you know, sounds a bit like a sports team pick method of you know, which department do I want to go in when I'm the next one on the list to choose my preferred department? And how does that all all work mm. in practice?
1: Well, it was always exciting if you were <coughs> if you were in charge of a department and you mm. saw the de Hunt process running, waiting to see who your minister mm. was going to be. You know, it was a, mm. a sort of free zone of excitement <laughs> as the as the name was announced, but. What I would say is, yes, it, it, it was difficult. You know yeah. if you look at it, uh, for most of the time you've had two predominant parties, mm. you know, whether mm. it was the, the first or the second mm. period of devolution. Um, and those predominant parties, mm. when you look at it, have had very different ideologies mm. and backgrounds. Uh, and you know they're in a, a marriage, mm. if you like, that wouldn't have been of their choosing, uh, but nonetheless. Uh, it was surprising that it did work mm-hmm. better than I mm-hmm. think a lot of people might have imagined. Uh, people did work together, and you know my experience of working with all five parties mm-hmm. is that they share a common desire mm-hmm. to make Northern Ireland mm-hmm. a better place to provide mm-hmm. good service for people in Northern Ireland. Now, again, uh, I don't want to mm-hmm. be sort of rose-tinted about this. There were many issues mm-hmm. where clearly it was difficult. Uh, or impossible to get agreement between the parties. Mm -hmm. I think one of the downsides is Mm -hmm. that a mechanism in the past was not found Mm -hmm. to resolve issues Mm -hmm. where they couldn't get agreement and things sat on the shelf for a Mm -hmm. long period of time. I think that's one of the issues Mm -hmm. that is being looked at in the talks at this particular stage. That is one of the things that I think would need to be different Mm -hmm. going forward.
0: And if we then come on to Ministers' fall just after their Referendum. So in January, uh, January 2017, do you think? No, am I getting my dates right? Uh, we have the fall of the executive. You then, as a civil service without sort of ministerial cover, particularly beyond the sort of foster McGuinness letter, have to then lead for Northern Ireland, inputting preparations for Brexit, Brexit negotiations with Ireland, Northern Ireland as a massive theme in those, and increasingly recently getting the getting Northern Ireland ready for no deal with a bit of a sort of news blackout from the Republic on what they're actually gonna do, etc. cetera, because they're for that, whatever I know, they published the big contingency plan update yesterday. So actually, how have you managed to do that? How have you found working with Whitehall and Whitehall ministers, Westminster ministers on that?
1: Well, the th- first thing I'd want yeah. to say is, uh, on Brexit and indeed all other mm. issues, I think as a civil service, we have had to be very careful not to adopt policy position mm. on anything, um, you know, our, our role as always mm. is to provide mm. advice and evidence and, and, and our advice always must be mm. evidence-based. Mm. Um, when it comes to working with Whitehall, mm. uh, I think there has been a level of engagement mm. which has increased <coughs> over the three years and which has now become very good. And I think if we're to take a positive out of the difficulties over the last while, it is that we um, probably have got better relationships Mm -hmm. with our counterpart departments in Whitehall than we've had in a very long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the civil service across the UK as a whole, Mm -hmm. uh, when it came to preparing for a Mm -hmm. possible no deal Mm -hmm. on the 29th of March, uh, did step up and uh, did prepare well worked very well together. It wasn't easy at the start, but yeah. we became much yeah. better at it. Um, so I think that's one of the positives mm-hmm. we can take from it, um, mm-hmm. is that there has been a much better relationship between Whitehall, and certainly, I can't speak for the three yeah. devolved administrations, yeah. but certainly, as from our perspective in Northern Ireland, we have had good engagement. Could always be better, mm-hmm. uh, and indeed, we're looking now at how we might improve that going forward, But. Certainly it, it, it did become very good over the last year.
0: Have you felt in any way a sort of victim of the slightly tense relationship between the UK government and the Scottish government? You know, at sort of meetings where JMC, European negotiations, where you might be expecting to do things but people are a bit reticent. We've had the Scots refusing legislative consent to the withdrawal bill and all of those sorts of things. I mean, has there been a feeling in Whitehall that we have to treat all the devolved governments the same? Or do you think you've actually been in a slightly different position because you haven't had ministers to? sort of put into that picture?
1: We, we probably are in a slightly different position because we don't have ministers. And certainly if we did have ministers, uh, there's no great secret here, mm. but you know, the two main parties mm. who mm. would uh, probably yeah. uh, appoint the first and deputy yeah. first minister um, have come from backgrounds mm. where one was in mm. favour of remain mm. and one was uh, in favour of leaving. Uh, That would have created difficulties, I have no doubt about that. Um, And and in the absence Mm. of that, I think it has been easier for us just to provide advice Mm. on the ideas that have Mm. emerged from Whitehall about (coughs) their impact Mm. on Northern Ireland. But as I say, one of the drawbacks is we have lacked that ministerial voice in Whitehall to champion Northern Ireland's cause on particular issues.
0: So that of course should have fallen to the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland is there in the Cabinet there should be championing that or do you do you not see the Secretary of State as the sort of champion of Northern Ireland at the cabinet table in quite the same way no, as I, I, you know if you had your own ministers there like Nicholas Sturgeon can or Mark Drakeford can?
1: Yes, obviously the, the Secretary of State yeah. is there to represent yeah. Northern Ireland's interests. Yeah but at the same time, it's subject to collective cabinet responsibility, and there, there, there will always be occasions yeah. where the local yeah. devolved administration um, may be at odds with the government of the day, and it's in, it, it's in those situations where having local ministers in place yeah. can actually add some clout to the points that may need to be made in whatever public debate is going on.
0: So I'm just interested, we're just obviously approaching a potential change of prime minister, um, have you, and we know that Mark Sedwill has offered uh, the equivalent of access talks to the two candidates who have gone through to the final ballot of um, the Tory of the Conservative Party membership. Um, Are you feeding in briefings through that process? Because obviously, one of the urgent decisions they will have to make is how to get ready for No Deal. What really are the consequences of No Deal, and get sort of honest inside assessment? Are you part of that sort of process? Going to be part of that process of feeding in information to the new candidates, or
1: no? We we haven't been asked to. But actually, it it, it reminds me, and I should Mm. have said this earlier, in relation to the question you asked about our accountability. Although ministers aren't in place Mm. in Northern Ireland, we have actually maintained good relationships with the five Mm. political parties, and we would offer them regular briefing on issues as they arise, be that budgetary issues, Mm. issues around Brexit, but equally um, uh, issues on just about, for example, health service, Mm. any area of public policy. Um, We will not refuse a request for a briefing, Mm. and at the same time, we will quite often offer briefings proactively.
0: And uh, I was just going to ask one final thing. I mean, you've said, I think you've been on the record saying it would be very disappointing if direct rule was imposed, but sort of do you have a view on how long you can go on running this system? You said that when you originally, when the executive first fell, you thought, well, we can manage for weeks, and weeks become months, months become years, but you know, is there a, sort of a length beyond which this cannot go? We've already seen mm. Michael Gove hint that uh, direct rule would be inevitable if there was a no-deal Brexit, because you couldn't be expected to, to make the sorts of decisions that might be required in Northern Ireland in those circumstances. So. Yeah, I
1: I, I go back two years and uh, people said how long can this go on? I said oh a few weeks, maybe a couple of months, but um, here we are. Mm. Um, I'm surprised there hasn't been more of a public reaction back mm. home to the absence of ministers. You know, it's it's. Mm. Yeah, okay. A right? <laughs> okay. Um, <well. laughs> uh, sorry, there was another part to your question. Was no,
0: I was just uh, just wondering whether you thought. Um, what about direct rule? Mm. Oh, yeah, sorry, uh, direct rule. No, direct no, sorry. rule I, in the I event did, of no I, deal. No, I
1: want to be very clear. Yeah. Uh, we do not want to see direct rule. Um, mm. We don't want to be mm. without ministers. But you know, you cannot beat mm. having your own locally elected ministers mm. to run your administrations. Mm. No matter how many challenges that may pose, given our Mm. unique political arrangements, Mm. but nonetheless, it is better than any Mm. of the alternatives.
0: Okay. Even in no deal, with that sort of, you know, if we've hit 1st of November and it's no deal, and the Irish basically say nothing can come south because you don't meet EU standards, which is. Uh,
1: In the event of no deal, uh, I actually. Don't think it would be acceptable for us to be left without ministers. And I think the range of challenges that we yeah. would face would be such that it would not. It would just. It would be wrong to leave the mm-hmm. civil service uh, in, in, in that position. And I know direct rule has been mooted in yeah. those circumstances.
0: Okay, let's go to questions to the audience. We're going <coughs> to throw in a few more. We'll take them in groups. We've got some roving mics. Uh, so just behind you, David, and then we'll come down here. Yeah. You tell uh, us yes. who you are. Uh, thank you very. Thank you
2: very much. My name is uh, Peter Kenway from uh, a very small think tank called the New Policy Institute. I'd like to ask you, uh, if I may, about the role of local government in in Northern Ireland. And if, if I can just give a couple of sort of background points. One way that Northern Ireland stands out is that if you measure it by the share of public spending that, if you like, you control... Uh, nor, uh, so, in other words, the, the uh, what would be controlled by the Assembly, Northern Ireland is the most centralized part of the United Kingdom by some way, and, and the limited role of local government is part only part, but it is part of the reason for that. and then take you back second to last year's report by the um, Northern Ireland Affairs Committee on devolution and Democracy, which Said that if the executive were not restored within a year, an independent review of local government finance and powers should be set up by the Secretary of State. Now, that report came out last May, so uh, we've had our year. Um, and so, my question obviously, you can't, I un- quite understand you obviously aren't going to make policy, but I wonder what scope you would see and perhaps the civil service in Northern Ireland would see for a greater role for local government in Northern Ireland. Um, and perhaps t- to give a Brexit specific, what role local government in N.I. might have in the, in the, shared, uh, in the shared Prosperity Fund. Mm, yeah. Thank yeah.
0: you. Yeah. And we still haven't seen the UK government's proposals, I think, on the Shared Prosperity Fund. Brian down here.
3: Thanks, Brian Walker, Constitution Unit. But half yeah. a lifetime ago, BBC Northern Ireland, political mm-hmm. editor and editor of Spotlight. Um, I'm just tempted to reflect briefly uh, on your careful answer about in the event of no deal you don't want to be without ministers and I read that as you preferring a form of direct rule perhaps under the careful ambit of the Intergovernmental Council which to me would make sense but nevertheless could I ask you directly about um, North-South preparations for no deal. Um, You will have some preparations yourself. Uh, We read quite a lot of hair-raising stuff from the Irish government about preparations Mm -hmm. Are you an active touch, or are you just reading the newspapers? And if you are an active touch, how's it going?
0: Uh, <laughs> if you said, uh, let's take the first question. it's very interesting it's sort of the balance between central and local. Tick tick? Yeah, take those two. Uh, the balance between central and local, and actually some things that are different because when we come over to Northern Ireland, everybody's always talking about water as a sort of huge big issue in Northern Ireland. It's quite a big issue here, but not like the same scale and. And quite a lot of people say the problem in Northern Ireland is everybody wants conservative level taxes and Labour spending proposals, yes. and nobody wants to face up to the sort of consequence of not being able to have <coughs> both. So I think it's quite interesting how you arrange spending and uh, spending and taxing decisions. So,
1: yeah, it's a good point. Um, and we sometimes, when we're talking about our political mm. difficulties, we forget that we have eleven co- councils which operate under the de system, mm. and they're working mm. well. So, people from different parties are working together mm-hmm. on important issues day and daily. I think there is a debate that mm-hmm. should be had about whether more could not be transferred from central to local government. Um, a, a chief executive I used mm-hmm. to be very friendly with said, when we sort out our political difficulties, we will then have to get down to the really serious stuff of deciding the split between mm-hmm. central and local government. Uh, and so, I, I think there is a real issue there. Uh, and, and I think um, the fact that the councils have worked so well in recent times, particularly in areas where you know there has been sharp polarisation between um, the communities in terms of the representation yeah. of the councils, I think there's, there's something for us in central government to learn for. And on being candid, mm. I suspect we in, in central government um, haven't given local authorities their proper place, and a lot of what they do in terms of community planning is very impressive at the moment. So. This is something we're mm-hmm. talking to uh, local government about. Um, on the north-south preparations, uh, alongside uh, the fact that our relationships with the Whitehall departments has improved, I would say, um, and not just because the Irish ambassador is two seats <laughs> away from you, that um, relationships between the Northern Ireland departments and the Irish government departments in Dublin are actually very good. Uh, and there has been a lot of engagement. Now, uh, like, I'll be very careful what I say here, but the Irish government has some sensitive issues to deal with around Brexit, and we recognise those. But certainly, there is good, uh, there's good discussion, there's good engagement, and there's a good understanding north and south about the challenges mm-hmm. which we face, many of which are mutual. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's happen in the no.
0: Okay, let's go and have another round of questions. We've
4: got, to come here. Mark. Wait. Thank you.
5: Um, uh, Mark Francois from the uh, House of Commons Defence Select Committee. Sorry to be a few minutes later, but uh, PM's queues often runs late now on a Wednesday. <laughs> um, a question that's not about Brexit. Um, that for you. Mm. Um, <laughs> but is about the very vexed issue of Northern Ireland veterans, which cropped up again in the House of Commons last mm. night. Now, I appreciate mm. this is not Strictly a matter for the executive. But the House of Commons may be asked at some point to legislate about the legacy institutions, and feelings are running high in the Commons. And there's a pretty iron determination, certainly on the Tory backbenchers, that no legislation will pass while alleged terrorists have letters of comfort from Blair and our veterans are wide open. So is it going to be a matter of at least some interest to the Northern Ireland executive? Because I can assure mm-hmm. you, if anybody puts mm-hmm. back, puts forward a bill that settles our veterans down the river at, to please Sinn Féin IRA and persuade them back into the executive, that bill is dead on arrival at
1: St Thomas's Hospital across the river before it even
5: gets second reading. Do
1: well, you you've obviously have that one up straight away? Yeah you've, yeah, you've touched on clearly a very sensitive issue, um, yeah. one, one in which there will be very, uh, there will be Strong views held by our various political parties. I don't think it would be appropriate for me to be drawn mm-hmm. on the merits of the various arguments there. Okay, but I recognise it's an issue. We just
5: wanted
0: to know. <laughs> <laughs> Noted, and it's now being broadcast to everybody, and we've told lots of people uh, back in Belfast to watch the live stream of David, David here. It's, it's quite interesting, I think, some of the sort of you know, ways in which we saw the bill being amended yesterday as well, uh, uh, the executive formation. formation. So. So it is quite interesting having to produce these vehicles, because there's not much other legislation going on in the UK Parliament at the moment as vehicles. uh, But I'm not going to ask you to comment on those, either, unless you really want to. Let's go there, and then we've got another couple of questions that will come over
3: here. Um, Lisa O'Carroll from The Guardian. Um, David, you uh, just referred to your letter in March, um, warning of profound consequences, and the Department of Economy in Northern Ireland this morning has put out a report which I think you quoted Mm -hmm. from saying there are 40,000 jobs at risk if there is no deal. Um, But your letter was attacked, and you were attacked for being an agent of Operation Fear. You were attacked in the House of Commons. You were attacked by Sammy Wilson. How did you feel about that? That's one question. And the second one is, can you remember a time when the Civil Service has come under such an attack and, you know, the House of Commons, there have been plenty of attacks on the Civil Service. You can think of Ollie Robinson also Mm -hmm. today, Kim uh, Kim Darroch resigning because Mm -hmm. of that.
0: Okay, let's, pro- let's go over there. We'll take a bunch
3: of three, yes. Um, hello, thank you f- for all you've said so far. Sam Lowe from the Center for European Reform. My question is about alternative arrangements because mm-hmm. I'm, sh- I'm sure you've been watching with interest all of these different proposals that have emerged. And I wonder if you've done any thinking as to how you would implement some of the proposals that have been put forth, which if we were to ignore the silly things and just to summarize is, we won't have checks literally on the border, but we might have them five minutes away. There'll be schemes that businesses have to sign up for that will require the consent of the communities. And if people don't consent, something quiet, mumble, 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 we'd have to lock people up until they did. Um, I wonder how you think that would go down on in, in the border areas, if it's actually preferable to do that over having physical infrastructure or if it actually has all of the same issues.
0: Okay, and then let's just
6: go forward. Oh, yes, okay. Um, another non-Brexit question. Can you
0: tell um, us who you one are?
6: of the issues, is, sorry, Jason Yule. Um, one of the issues we haven't sort of talked about is how we got here in RHI and the role that's played in Northern Ireland politics. Um, how do you feel about the role that civil servants have played in that, in terms of designing this scheme, mm-hmm. how to have dealt with the fallout from it, cutting the payments, mm-hmm. and all that's still going on in the inquiry? What, what's your sort of views on how your teams handled it?
0: Mm, I think this is actually showing the sort of giant size of your intro here, David. So <laughs> we start off with, uh, with Lisa on the sort of no deal warnings and how you feel about the sort of reaction to the warnings that you, you put out. Yeah,
1: it's a big issue. Um, as, as far as comments about me were concerned at the time, uh, I've developed a thick skin. Um, I know several of those who actually made the criticisms. Mm-hmm. Um, I know the spirit in which they were made, and I can live with it. You know, I think that's just something that goes with the territory now. Um.
0: It is quite interesting to read some of the things being put on the Northern Ireland Civil Service Government website and Northern Ireland Government website, and some of the sort of to your things are sort of. Uh, Refreshingness, I think, compared to some of the sort of slightly more sp- spun things we get. Well, it is. It is one of the time. interesting things about the situation
1: so. we find ourselves in is that we have had. I, I said it before. We've had to become more visible, but you come you, that comes with more attention. And I think one thing I have learnt is, um, if you're featured in social media, don't go into the timeline below the particular tweet. <laughs> I guess there's the bad stuff there. And I can understand, in a sense, why those comments mm. are made. I would refute them. I mm. would. Uh, I would not agree with them. Um, as I say, I, I. I have spoken to some of the people who have mm. made some of those mm. comments. So you know, it's. I can live with it. Um, I, I'll not comment on some of the other cases you mentioned. Where you know, I, well, I'll, I'll not say any more. Um, on the alternative arrangements. arrangements. Yeah, look clearly. On the one hand, if we we're saying no deal, uh, would have profound and grave consequences for Northern Ireland. We clearly have an interest in seeing a deal. There, there needs to be some agreement at the end of all of this. I think inevitably that means uh, all sorts of options need to look at, need mm. to be looked at. I think our, we have clearly throughout seen that our role in the Northern Ireland Civil mm. Service is to provide advice, uh, to provide evidence, to facilitate meetings with business people um to do all we can short of proposing policies mm. uh, to help find a way through mm. this because this you know this potentially could be you know uh, just mm. a, a really significant seismic change uh, and we need it. when the change occurs, we need to be one that um, does least damage to Northern Ireland and indeed provides us with opportunities to grow and mm. prosper moving forward. so, that we see as our role is really facilitating, uh, producing data, finding evidence, supporting those who are looking mm. to find these alternative right. arrangements, and we've worked well with those groups that are involved in mm. these endeavours. And we've actually worked well with various business groups too. Um, and the last one was the RHI. big
0: elephant in the room, which mm. is yeah. the still outstanding RHI uh, inquiry.
1: I'm not sure you know this when you asked the question, but obviously I was. Mm the department of enterprise trade yeah. investment yeah. and the scheme was set up so you know i am uh, i expected to be criticized in the public inquiry set that to one side uh, there's a lot that we will learn from the public inquiry and uh, we're determined as civil service that we want to see the inquiries report as a force for good <coughs> um, we've already changed a lot of things you know a lot of things had been changed even before the inquiry commenced but certainly we will be using the inquiry um, to learn lessons to make sure that something like that doesn't happen again
0: so do we have any do you have any idea on timing because it was originally end of june and then summer is um, it the sort of whitehall is the whitehall summer the same as the belfast summer which means sort of december or something like that? informed
1: speculation suggests september
0: all right okay very interesting okay let's go do some more questions lots of people now uh, David, if you just go to Dave there. And we'll
1: come down here.
7: Yeah. Uh, Dave Penman from uh, the FDA. First of all, uh, David, um, I'd like to pay tribute to you and your staff. I think one of the the, the problems in Northern Ireland is that, particularly given the, 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 the abdication of uh, politicians from the responsibilities of governing, there's not really anyone championing the role of, of the civil service and the incredible work you're doing. So mm-hmm. I'd first of all like to do that. Mm-hmm. But then I'd like to touch on again with the RHI inquiry. That's obviously been quite difficult for the civil service, mm. but it's also exposed some real flaws in how the coalition governments have worked, both in terms of individual ministers and, and how they've conducted themselves, mm. but also this kind of unique situation where, although it's a coalition, essentially they're guaranteed power. Mm. And I think that has led to some kind of sloppy practices. And I wonder what you think about. I know the Civil Service has started to take Mm. some reforms, and and you'll Mm. reflect on what the actual inquiry says. Whether you think it will change some of the governance arrangements for how the coalition government works and what kind of role there might be for external ombudsmen or whatever around um, ensuring good governance in the future?
0: Yeah. Should we just come here? Yeah. And then to
3: the back. uh, Sorry, Ian Duncan. Would a no-deal Brexit risk disrupting the all-Ireland single electricity
0: market? Okay, very specific and
2: then just behind, just right at the back. Joe Simpson, Leadership Centre. Um, if we go back to a previous impasse um, under the Blair government, mm. uh, Jeff Rooker's solution then was let the local government fill the gap. And that, and, mm. as you know, kick started the reorganisation. So we've just had a reasonably successful second round of local government elections. Um, So how much more could you actually do during this to actually build on the fact that at local level the parties are actually working together, admittedly with slightly more tension than it was two and a half years ago, but it is still functioning and all 11 have gone through that change.
0: I think that builds on the earlier point, doesn't it, from from Peter Kenway. you want to take... um Take the sort of Dave's point. I think it's quite interesting uh, to sort of widen this. You've got the RHI inquiry, and I think some things some people have said is that one of the reflections of civil service on some of the evidence coming to the RHI inquiry is that civil service was sort of just too keen to make sure power sharing worked, and not sort of so you know to support that because it was sort of just sort of great that it was working in some way, and that maybe not. You've been very. Double d- b- b- I said that. Yes. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> being very. Uh, Anyway, but I just sort of wonder whether you had thoughts, particularly in the sort of if power sharing comes back, you know, what civil service can do, but also maybe what, what else could be done to make power sharing work better when it comes back and actually confront some of this intray you're about to present the new ministers with, the same while you've been away, here's a stack of all these things that are too problematic, and we didn't have any political coverage to do anything, so, so how do we, you know, rebuild and yeah. reinforce? <laughs>
1: There are lessons to be learned, yeah. uh, and indeed, uh, discussions I've had with the leaders of the political parties—they've accepted that things will need to mm. be different when they come back. So there's a there's a sort of shared agreement mm. that we need to learn from this. Um, and I think one of the one of the big challenges is developing policy for a region of 1.8 million people can often take the same mm. effort as it does to develop policy for. 55, 60 million people. Uh, And one of the things we saw in a devolved government, quite rightly, was local ministers Mm -hmm. wanted solutions that were right for Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. Uh, Perhaps we didn't recognize sufficiently that there was a capacity issue and a competence issue Mm -hmm. that we needed to address. I think we've recognized that now. Mm -hmm. These issues are being Mm -hmm. discussed in the political talks, I'll not go into the the details of that, but the one thing I think I can say is uh, there's a recognition in the civil service and there's a recognition by ministers that we will need to, when it comes to policy development in the future, we will need to practice uh, co-production, co-design type approaches. There's a very Mm. strong desire in the civil service and in Mm. the political parties to involve civic society much more in the policy development process. Uh, One of the things I think we know is that when it comes to tackling the really big, difficult issues that bedevil many of our disadvantaged areas, that you need to involve the people who are affected by public policies. Uh, Like We see time and again where areas that are suffering from disadvantage, and it isn't the quantum Mm -hmm. of interventions and money that's going into those areas, Mm It's the coordination of government activity. Could be better and would give better outcomes. Mm. So those are the issues that we are grappling with and that, um, again, talked about the RHI being a sort of force for good. Those are the sort of things that I think will allow the inquiry report to be a force for good. Going
0: to the question about the single electricity market, can that function Um, after?
1: We're, our current analysis is that we're, we're comfortable, we're confident that mm-hmm. even the event of no deal, the, the single electricity market will continue to function. Um,
0: and the final oh, question look was look whether you have anything more to say about, uh, about local government or just that sort of the I in-tray there.
1: Probably repeating myself, yeah. but I think there is an argument that when I get an executive back, we should be looking at, and it'll be a matter for ministers, obviously, not for me. But I, I think there is an argument that we should be looking to see: can we devolve more to local government, or can we certainly work better with them uh, and leverage the, you know, the uh, the resources that local government can deploy on issues. Um, do,
0: if we come down over here, but do do a couple in this corner and then we'll come back and do a final session
3: over here yes i'm bernard jenkin chairman of the public administration and constitutional affairs committee first of all uh i don't think i've ever had an opportunity to thank you for the role that you've undertaken this past two years and um uh listening to you uh, underlines um, how much you're doing above and beyond your usual calling and uh, i think we should we should take that on board, and thank you for that, and to all your officials. But um, I'm interested in what you will actually do in the event that we leave the EU either with absolutely no agreement at all, which I regard as very unlikely, or with some kind of um, cobbled-together minor set of agreements on 31st of October. Um, And I don't blame you at all for um, listing all the worst-case the things that may happen and what the costs would be and the consequences but presumably there's likely to be a conversation well what does the uk government need to do to mitigate tariffs or non-tariff barriers or other things that you have warned about how would you go about making such a, a list of options and costing them and presenting them to the uk government is that something you could do
0: okay and michael if you'd hand back to
4: Thank you. Michael J. from the House of Lords. It follows, in a way, from Bernard Jenkins' question, in a way. It's a positive uh, scenario in which we have left without acrimony, and uh, 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 Northern Ireland ministers are uh, in power and effective. But in those circumstances, uh, we're going to find that decisions need to be taken by the UK government and its constituent parts which have hitherto been taken in Brussels on agriculture, on the environment, on fisheries, and so on. And I just, I mean, that clearly has the, uh, the possibility of tensions arising between uh, London on the one hand and Belfast, uh, Edinburgh, and Cardiff. And I just wondered what sort of structures you thought would be necessary to ensure that those sorts of issues were handled effectively and whether you thought that those structures existed now and whether, in effect, you have any confidence in the Joint Ministerial Council.
0: (laughs) Okay, let's take those (laughs) two and then we'll do final questions over here. So, yes, so, Brenda Jenkins, Uh,
4: no
1: deal again. There is work work going on to uh, look at what might Mm. be done to mitigate the impact on particular sectors. And that runs to actually calculating how much support might be needed to support sectors. And I think the focus will obviously be on finding ways to support sectors where you can see that there is a viable market or there will be a viable market in the future. There's not much point providing support to a sector where there isn't going to be a viable market further on, (coughs) but to provide, I think you can justify government action to allow uh, companies' time to restructure and adapt to new mm-hmm. circumstances. That work is going on and mm-hmm. we are working well mm-hmm. with our, you know, for example, our uh, Department mm-hmm. for Agriculture, Environment, and Rural mm-hmm. Affairs are working very well with DEFRA mm-hmm. in that regard. There's good mm-hmm. engagement with the Treasury as well. So I, I can assure you that work is going on. And uh, I don't think I'm going to opine mm-hmm. on the effectiveness of the mm-hmm. JMC. I think, <laughs> I, will, I think I will duck that one. But uh, what I will say is that there is a lot of work going on again across uh, mm. UK government and with the devolved administrations on looking at what future frameworks may be necessary um, to actually ensure there is coordinated policy in a wide range of areas across the United Kingdom. Because uh, this will be a big change, and you know, yeah. for example, determining policy mm. on uh, how you protect mm. the environment. How you mm. support farms how you support the agri-food sector uh, there's a whole range of issues there where interests in mm. the regions the devolved mm. administrations may be different from those that central government so this is going to be a big challenge for some time to come and uh yeah i think we'd probably still a bit to learn about but how that works most but effectively. is your
0: contribution hampered by because these are quite big policy decisions for some things and yes. what goes into a common <coughs> framework what isn't you've got not got any cover for those, basically, because Ministers didn't know they were going to have to confront them when the Assembly collapsed, so you haven't got a nice document sitting there saying this is the Northern Ireland ministerial approach. And this is a
1: good example where the absence of Ministers is hindering us because as you you look Mm. at the implications Mm. of the repatriation of policy from Brussels, Mm. uh, there are some very big Mm. decisions that will need to be taken And whatever your view on Brexit is, I think mm. most people would say, well, if we have control over mm. these particular mm. policies, we could probably do better, yeah. things better than they're being done at the moment. But you need ministers to set that policy.
0: OK, let's do some questions here, and then I'm going to give a final question to the Irish ambassador, just because he has agreed to be on our panels before. So anyway, yes, these two.
6: David Torrance from the House of Commons Library. Do you think yesterday's Commons votes on abortion and same-sex marriage Uh, set a potentially difficult precedent, and do you think it makes executive formation easier or harder?
0: Okay, and then behind you. Uh,
6: Matthew Thompson from LBC Radio. I want to go back to uh, Brexit again, sadly. (laughs) Um, you just, if I (laughs) interpret, how dare I? Yes, (laughs) this is an indirect question (laughs) though, Mark, so hopefully it won't bother you too much. (laughs) I wanted, if, if we interpret your um, cry, let's say it, for um, uh, ministers in the event of a no deal as a sort of coded way of saying that you might need direct rule, one of the things that I've heard quite a lot is that the Northern Ireland office is very small. <laughs> I think it's about 150 people or something, last mm. I checked. Do you not bigger? think that it would be prudent for the government as mm. part of its no-deal preparations to maybe embark on some sort of recruitment drive in order that it was in a position that the Northern Ireland office could take the reins?
0: Okay, and then final question over
8: there. Adrian. Uh, thanks, Jill. Uh, Adrian O'Neill, Irish ambassador. So uh, a comment on a question, no. and the comment is that, I mean, David earlier referred to I think what he said was very much a kind of a shared mm-hmm. understanding between the Irish government and uh, the Northern Ireland administration in relation to the kind of the, cu- the challenges that that Brexit will represent, and I think that is certainly the case. And I think the the um, the plan yesterday, the updated mm-hmm. contingency plan that was published by the Irish government, in many ways, I- its assessment of the kind of mm-hmm. challenges around the economy, around Northern Ireland, and around North-South relations will very much. Uh, reflect the kind of things which, which David said to us uh, at the outset. Just in relation to the question, David, and you were quite rightly very reticent about the current, uh, about the current talks that are uh, ongoing at the moment. Um, but in the event, if, if, it was, if it was the happy case that we uh, got a positive outcome in relation to the reestablishment of the, of the, of the executive um, uh, in, the, in the near future, do you think that would be helpful in helping us all collectively uh, kind of uh, navigate the, the challenges of, of Brexit that we, that, we, that we face in the
1: autumn.
0: Okay, that's a bit of a killer last question. Yeah, um, do I just pick up the, the questions?
1: Uh, oh yes, sorry, this was the... The, the
0: Abortion same so like sex the amendments yes. in the House of... They're obviously not law yet, because they're just amendments at uh, committee stage, but assuming um, that they...
1: I'm, I'm not going to comment on the... I'm not going to be drawn on the mm. policy issues there. Mm. Uh, And I'm also not going to speculate on how those decisions yesterday might Mm incentivise local parties or how they might behave, Mm -hmm. Um, firstly, because it's probably inappropriate for me Mm -hmm. to do so, but secondly, because when it comes to speculating, I'm always wrong, so Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm hopeless when it comes to predicting political Mm -hmm. outcomes in Northern Ireland, so uh, apologies, I will duck that one. Um, on the NIO, um, I think the NIO has grown in size a little um, uh, in response to recent demands and what have you. But that would be a matter, obviously, for UK government. So I, I, I wouldn't want to comment any further on that. Um and lastly
0: in, in direct rule? I just wanted to ask: you, under direct rule, are lots of lots of advice given by the NIO, or basically do they just sort of post on advice that's coming from Belfast from the NICS and? Just sort of top and tail it and th- push it onto their ministers and just say, This is what the local people say, and things like that. I'm just interested how it works.
1: Um, <laughs> that, that's probably worth a session in itself. Okay.
0: So <laughs> OK, well, if we get to that, we'll have a session. We'll have you back yeah. for a session how direct rule, direct rule works. So Adrian's final an ex- comment. An, an does executive,
1: I think, yeah, dealing with the challenge of Brexit would be difficult, but an executive we need an executive to deal with the big issues. Like I've I've touched on a few of them. Uh, Absent the executive, we haven't been able to respond as well as we should have been able to. As I say, it would be challenging, given that Mm -hmm. the two main parties would be coming at this from different directions, but nonetheless, uh, I I think, in fact, I've, I've, I've seen evidence that they're both keen to get back so that they can actually get to grips with this particular issue, because they know how significant it is for Northern Ireland.
0: Is there one final question anyone is burning In which, yes, one at the back. Final, final question.
6: Forgive me because this is a sensitive question and it may be one too sensitive to be addressed. In June of last year, uh, George Hamilton and Stephen Martin, so Chief Constable and Deputy Mm -hmm. Chief Constable of the PSNI gave oral evidence to the Northern Irish Affairs Committee. And they were talking about checks and controls and the probability that armed police officers would have to accompany, at least near the border, every single one of the customs and other officers. And they were asked by Lady Harmon, I quote, it is a potentially a very dangerous situation And Stephen Martin replies, yes, I have no doubt that if there is not an enhanced policing profile, even if that policing profile is not supportive of other agencies doing mobile compliance checking, I think it is in yards or other places, I think it is highly foreseeable that there will be attacks on the police and attempts to murder police officers if that situation was to occur. So this is June of last year, in which in this evidence they say that borders are irrelevant in a sense that the physical borders they have two or three properties i think they're still trying to hunks of concrete they're trying to sell the true issue not the alternative arrangements which obviously help to reduce providing those alignment of checks and controls but it's the volume of checks and controls will it be 200 a day 200 a week or more how many police officers, how many of these customs officers will be going round Northern Ireland and carrying out these checks locally? Forgive me, it's a very direct question, but it seems to me that it's the elephant in the room.
0: So the joint report, of course, says that it's not just the physical infrastructure, it's also the associated related checks that you might have that are to be avoided, which is one of the areas where we say. Uh, that uh, it's not clear that the UK government the Irish government the EU have exactly the same understanding what was in the in the joint report. I think the PSNI is on the alternative arrangements? In they are.
1: They're it. represented there. I think all I'll say in response to that is mm-hmm. the PSNI's assessment has been and, and remains mm-hmm. that uh, new infrastructure on the border would be at risk of attack from dissident mm-hmm. Republicans, so I, I'll not go beyond mm-hmm. that. Thanks.
0: Thanks. So. Just a final final question, when I was um, being driven to the airport by a taxi driver last night, Belfast taxi drivers are amazing because you get the entire sort of political history of Northern Ireland in a uh, seven pound taxi ride, which is amazing on two fronts if you're in London. Um, but, uh, but he was saying tensions are rising palpably, he was saying the bonfires are bigger, You know, showing me some of the bonfires we were going past and, uh, and I know there's sort of issues about taking down flags and things like Belfast City Council doing racing. Do you think that actually, you know, is it palpable to you that tensions are getting bigger with the absence of government, Brexit, sort of polarising effect here in the UK, in Northern Ireland as well? Is that something we should be paying more attention to here?
1: I think if you look at the general trends over a number of years now, issues around parades in the summer Mm. have been on the decline, and we have seen less street disorder, and that's welcomed by everybody. I think there are one or two tensions around bonfires at the moment. Uh, I I think there probably are some other Mm. societal tensions which are a result of just the political impasse. Uh, I wouldn't want to overstate it, but at the same time, I wouldn't want to be complacent. Uh, I don't think there's any danger that Northern Mm. Ireland society is going to go back to where we were many years ago. But I think it would be wrong to be complacent and assume that everything is just going to be okay forevermore. Mm. This needs to be nurtured. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great point to end. Thank you very much, David, for coming and being so candid about what is going on. That was uh, amazingly interesting. Actually, um, Jess Sargent and I from the Institute for Government are doing a small piece of work on uh, the consequences of not having a government in Northern Ireland, which we hope will be out in September. One reason why I'm interested in the time of the RHI inquiry <laughs> about whether we get it out before that or not. Um, I don't think we we'll have to wait for that. Um, but it is incredibly interesting, actually, just you know, if you're a student of government or whatever, how civil services work and things like that, just to <coughs> find out what is going on in North Alliance. So it is definitely worth actually digging into and taking much further looks. And actually, I agree with Bernard Jenkin. I think it's actually amazing that what the North Alliance Civil Service has been doing to keep the show. On the road in the absence of ministers for this unprecedentedly long time, someone saying actually, you know, unprecedented anywhere else in Europe or whatever. We look at the Belgians and whatever, but uh, anyway. So it's they've had caretaker governments. So it is amazing. Thank you so much, David, for coming and sharing your thoughts with us, and uh, and come back. Uh, So thank you very much. Thank
2: you.